0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hi everyone, and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from Nam, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about dishwashing and the great dishwashing debate, whether to use the washing machine or to wash our dishes by hand. And to help us uh, with that debate today, we're joined with um, Jennifer Chesick, who is a medical and science journalist. Hi, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Great. So do you mind introducing yourself a bit so we get to know a bit more about who you are and why you're here today?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, as you said, I'm a medical and science journalist, and I am also an adjunct instructor and a uh, fact checker for a lot of medical health articles. So, that's what I do in a nutshell. And I recently wrote an article about whether we should be hand washing our dishes or using the dishwasher. And I looked at the differences between uh, the, these two methods and which one is more environmentally friendly, which one gets your dishes cleaner, and things like that. So that's why I'm here.
0: Great. Thank you. And I imagine that being a medical and science journalist would mean that you get to learn about lots of different um, medical and science things and write lots of articles about different things.
1: Absolutely. I'm constantly learning new things, and that's, uh, that's what I love about my job because I dig into different medical studies all the time, different scientific studies, and all of it's super fascinating to me. And I love being able to put it all together into an article that makes sense to the general public, of course.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And um, thank you for doing such great work. Um, So um, we're going to do a section that we call Have You Met Jennifer? And that's where we ask you uh, some of your favorite things to get to know you a bit better. So our first thing we want to know is what's your favorite book?
1: Wow, that is such a hard question because I'm a voracious reader, as you can see with my bookshelf back here. But I did pick out a few that I really love to mention. And so one is called In the Distance, and that's by Hernan Diaz. Hernan Diaz just recently won a Pulitzer for a different book, but um, that's my favorite book of his. Watership Down by Richard Adams. That's a childhood novel, love it. Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Straddle and Moral Disorder by Margaret Atwood. And then recently I just finished Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, another Pulitzer winner.
0: Gosh, that's quite a few books and they seem to span quite a few different genres as well.
1: Yes, I read from all different genres, just love a good narrative, good story.
0: Great, yeah. um, We were admiring all your bookshelves beforehand, so good to know. Thank you. And what about a movie you've enjoyed recently? So
1: I haven't watched movies recently for some reason, but I've been watching several TV shows on streaming platforms. And of course, like everyone else, I'm uh, heavy into succession right now. I need to get caught up because I know it just wrapped up, but that's a good show for sure.
0: Yeah, I know my partner's also watching it and he couldn't go on Twitter for a day because he wasn't <laughs> caught up with it.
1: Yeah, you have to be careful so you don't get spoiled when you're looking online. So
0: <laughs> I know. Um And um, do you listen to any podcasts?
1: Yeah. So I've been listening to several that are related to uh, my book that's about to come out. And so some of the podcasts that I've been diving into are On the Rocks with Nate Callens, Modern Psychedelics with Lana Privick, The Light Within with Leslie Draffin, A Whole New Level, which is about metabolic health. It's super fascinating. The High Guide with April Pride, and Expanding Reality with Brandon Thomas. So that's just kind of a handful that I've been enjoying lately.
0: And so they all seem to be on one topic. What is that topic?
1: They are all, uh, well, many of them cover different subjects, but the the bulk of these cover psychedelics, So, uh, mm. which is something that I'm really passionate about and just recently wrote a book about. So.
0: Great. We'll talk about that a little bit later, yeah. so not going to dive into that. Um, and do you have a role model?
1: I do my mom is my absolute role model role model so love her
0: Mm -hmm. and why is that
1: well I think she just conducts herself with a lot of grace and class and in terms of just being kind to people and just living her life the way that she wants to live it and I just really admire that about her
0: Uh, that's lovely um Yeah, I also admire people who aren't afraid to be who they are and, you know, actually do what they want and live life how they want. Yes. Um, And what about a course that has inspired you? Have there been any?
1: I haven't taken a course lately, but I really do love the writing related courses at uh, a literary nonprofit that's called The Porch. And that's located in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, but they offer classes virtually as well. So I highly recommend it, especially to writers.
0: So how do you define household management?
1: Yeah, managing a household is certainly a job that we all must do whether you rent an apartment or you own a home. And I think of of household management as just all of the little and big jo- tasks or jobs that need to get done around the house, whether that's changing furnace filters, stocking the pantry with groceries or uh, you know, doing a deep clean, or even just doing yard work, all of that—it is involved in hos- household management. And I'm really grateful that I grew up in a household where I had regular tasks as a child that I was responsible for, and had to treat those tasks like a job. And it was a way of my, you know, not only pitching in with my family and stuff, but it really gave me a good education in household management and set me up for being able to adult well, I think.
0: That's interesting that you say that you're grateful for that, because I feel like a lot of people were very (laughs) resentful for it, um, as kids, at least.
1: I think, yeah, I certainly have heard from people who were resentful of having chores, but I, I definitely am the opposite, because I can see that there are people out there who never had chores and never learned some of these tasks or, you know, laundry, how to do laundry properly or how to cook. And I'm so grateful that I learned those things as a kid.
0: Mm, Definitely. And I think um, I see my mom especially and also my dad a bit um, in how I do a lot of the things. I do them in specific ways that my parents taught me. Um, And I do sort of, it makes me think about them when I'm doing all my little chores.
1: Of course. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm constantly thinking about my mom when I'm cleaning or thinking about when I'm out in the yard doing gardening, which I'm really passionate about. I'm constantly thinking about my dad. How would he do this? You know.
0: Mm. Um, And what are some misconceptions about household management?
1: Ah, that's a good one. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the labor of household management falls to women. And, you know, that's just simply not true. Everyone in the household needs to pitch in. So I think even when men share some of these physical tasks that that are being done around the house, whether that's cleaning or laundry, they still often turn to the woman if they're in a cis-hetero partnership, of course. Um, to do this emotional labor of figuring out what tasks need to be done, when and how. And I think that truly needs to change. Men need to be taking the initiative to know when the house is out of toilet paper, or when furnace filters needs to, need to be changed, or when the shower needs to be cleaned of mold or whatever. And, you know, we shouldn't Men shouldn't just be looking to their partners to um for instruction essentially. They need to figure it out and get it done. So that's I think the misconception there is just that it should fall to the woman and it really should.
0: Okay. Um, but do you think it'd be easier if like maybe just one partner in in a couple, you know, sort of knows everything? I'm not saying it has to be the woman or the man, but or is it easier if you both share both it? Is I, is it easier if we both share?
1: I think it yeah, it makes sense to share the responsibilities not only in doing the tasks, but also the emotional labor of figuring out what needs to be done. I think that needs to be shared. And it might be that um, if you're in a if you're in a partnership with a you know you're you're part of a couple, that you figure out which tasks are the ones that you manage. doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to do that task, but maybe, there's a person who's in charge of the cleaning schedule. Maybe there's a person who's in charge of the laundry schedule, or whatever that might be. And then you share the tasks, essentially.
0: Okay, that's um, that's a good option because, yeah, I find um, I don't. I, and I, I'm not saying that my fa- my partner and I um, don't share our tasks, but uh, I think both of us think that we both do the majority of the work.
1: <laughs> I think that's a common uh, thing in, in couples where, you know, everyone thinks they're doing all the work or something mm. like that. So I, I get um, it.
0: So I do like the idea of trying to share it out and actually mapping out, um, what each of us are supposed to do or in charge of. Um, and actually, um, it funnily enough, uh, one of my partner's main, I guess, um, chores thing he's in charge of is dishwashing. Um, so what is dishwashing? <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that because uh, my partner, my husband, he's typically in charge of the dishwashing too. It doesn't mean that he always has to do it. But uh, you know, I think he manages that really well. So that's good. Mm. Um, So dishwashing can either be done by hand or via dishwasher. But the bottom line is that it's good. It's a good thing to do after every meal so that dishes don't pile up. So that's obviously why it's important. We don't want dirty dishes sitting on the counter and then attracting bugs, um, things like that, and stinking up the house. So, um, you know, in our in our household, we typically try to weave dishwashing into our everyday life and tasks. And and, and we have it so much set up that way that I barely think of dishwashing as a task anymore. It just happens.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the difference between my partner and I, which is that he does the dishes after every meal. I'll let things accumulate over the day, uh, which maybe isn't the best practice, and we'll talk about practices later. Um, And then it does become a chore because you have to, you know, stand there and do all of the dishes for the whole day. Um, But you also mentioned a little bit about why it's important. But do you mind elaborating a bit?
1: Sure. So in terms of yeah, why? uh, I mean, I love a clean house, and I'm pretty. Uh, pretty much a stickler for that. So if I have a dirty kitchen, it's stressful to me. And so I think it can have an impact on your mental health. If you have a dirty kitchen doesn't necessarily have to be spotless. But if you've got dirty dishes sitting out, there's clutter, your stress, it, it can create a stress for you. And, um, and then additionally, again, dirty dishes can attract bugs. So you might start attracting roaches or, or mice or other pests that you don't want in your home. And, you know, it obviously depends on where you live, whether if there's more of a risk or not. But, but yeah, I think that's something that I'm very conscious of is that I keep it clean because I don't want unwanted guests in my house.
0: And so, even if you just left them out for a couple hours, that can attract pests?
1: You know, I don't think there's a huge risk for it attracting pests if you don't have a pest problem already. If you're just leaving it out for a few hours, as you mentioned, you, you, let the dishes accumulate throughout the day and then you do them all you know in the evening or whatever which is fine and that's fine too it's just more we can't have it piling up for a week or days at a time because that's when we start to have issues i think with unwanted guests in the house creepy crawlers
0: yeah yeah fair enough um and so you know if you want to make our you know dishwashing better um what should we do um I guess, do them regularly, at least once a day?
1: Definitely. Um, you know, I think a few practices that have helped me is when you're cooking. So when I'm cooking, I will hand wash a lot of the items that I use as I go. So if I use a pot or a pan or a colander or a knife or some um, some type of utensil, um, you know, I, I accumulate it for a little bit. And then as soon as I have a free moment in the kitchen, uh, maybe maybe my Food is cooking in the oven, or something like that. Then I turn my attention to cleaning up those dishes that I use while I'm using that time of waiting for my meal to be done. Uh, so that's that's one thing that I do. And then um, I really I'm a stickler for cleaning up any kitchen mess before eating, which may sound silly, like is your dinner going to get cold? But but if you are cleaning as you go while you're cooking, then that typically doesn't happen. And I love the idea of just being able to relax after dinner and not stress about the dishes, other than the ones that you've just eaten off of those have to go back to the kitchen, but or, you know, uh, be put away. But, um, but yeah, I really, I think that cleaning up the mess before eating is also a really great practice that at least that I do. And then either, um, you know, I will either hand wash the dishes or load up the dishwasher after every meal. So I take the dishes that we've used and then put them in the dishwasher Um, I'm also a stickler for emptying the dishwasher soon after it's done running so that you always have the ability to reload it and then you never have to worry about the fact that you might because it's got a bunch of clean dishes in there, you don't want to load it with dirty dishes. So if it's empty, you can start loading it up. And so then you don't have dishes sitting on your counter. Um, And then if you're using the dishwasher, uh, you know, another best practice, I think, especially if you're trying to be more environmentally friendly is that you can use the normal setting rather than that heavy op the there many dishwashers have like a heavy option so i d- just use that normal setting and you can even skip the dry setting or use a non like heat drying option and that will help save energy as well if if, if you're you know planning to be environmentally friendly
0: okay so i actually we have a dishwasher but we don't really know Or well, i grew up with dishwashers and I don't understand all the different settings. Um <laughs> and it was always my parents just said press this button and make sure it's on this setting and then it's fine. So what are the, all the different like why why is there a heavy duty setting? Why is there a what are all the different ones and what do they do? Yeah, there's
1: usually a heavy setting and a normal setting. So I sometimes there's a light setting. It really depends on how fancy your dishwasher is. Mine's not that fancy. But um but yeah, if you if you turn it to heavy it involves more energy and more water and a longer time. And then if you just use the normal setting, it's basically just a normal cycle. And so it uses a little bit less energy. So I'm not really sure why dishwashers have that heavier setting. Obviously, if, if you have heavily soiled dishes, that might be the case. But uh, but I, I rarely use that setting. Uh, I typically just go with that normal setting.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah, so um, you also discussed the environmental impact of dishwashers and that, you know, they can, you know, using the um, heavy setting as opposed to the um, regular setting means it uses more water and electricity. Um, And how does that compare to hand washing?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question and I did write about this. So uh, my mom grew up in, I'm going to go back to the olden days, my mom grew up in rural North Dakota without running water. And that always sort of blows my mind that my mom grew up without running water. But she and her family members to to wash dishes, they had to carry water in a very large cream can from their water well, and then bring it inside and heat it on their stove, and then use that same water to wash all the dishes for a family of seven. And there was no opportunity for rinsing because they didn't have running water, of course. And so she told me that, uh, you know, by the time we got to the pots and pans, the water was pretty gross, is what she said. And then afterwards, they would haul that water out to uh, a pig trough so that pigs could drink from it. And so, you know, back then, I guarantee that she wasn't, as a hand washer, was not using more water than a dishwasher, for sure. Um, Most of that energy just came, most of the energy that was being used really just came from, you know, good old fashioned elbow grease, right? Right. So but nowadays, when we wash dishes, when we hand wash dishes, we aren't exactly following those same practices, not that same painstaking method, right? So we typically use I and I'm guilty of this when I hand wash, I will typically use too much soap and way more water than necessary. And you know, you know, you're using the sprayer and the high pressure to get to rinse the dishes rather than using the elbow grease. And so Obviously, if you do if you could use more elbow grease and less water and soap, it would be more environmentally friendly. But um, an analysis out of UCLA uh, shows that hand washing actually uses more water per dish and per load than you know, if you're washing a load of dishes, hand washing them than using the dishwasher. So and that same analysis shows that dishwashers generate fewer greenhouse gas emissions. The additional water distribution and energy required to heat the water for hand washing is just a little bit harder on the environment, is what the research says. And then um, a small laboratory study out of the University of Michigan's School for Environmental uh, Environment and Sustainability kind of backs up that info. The study compared typical hand washing practices, so typical to, to typical uh, machine use, so you know, comparing the typical practices of hand washing to the typical practices that we would use to load the dishwasher and run the dishwasher. But if you were to wash four loads of dishes per week with eight place settings per load, that would be a lot. That'd be like a large family. But if that's the case, and then um, over the course of 10 years, using the dishwasher would still generate less than half of the greenhouse gas emissions as hand washing would. So we would have Uh, much less in terms of greenhouse gases if we're using the dishwasher over that period of time.
0: Interesting. But what about if you have a smaller family or you're running the dishwasher more frequently? Like um, I remember growing up, there was only four of us, but I'm pretty sure we ran the machine once a day um, rather than, you know, four times a week. So that's seven times. Um, Does that sort of negate that... um, you know, um, savings in the, or negate the environmentally, environmental friendliness of it. Sorry.
1: Right. So, you know, it's unclear. I don't have a direct comparison with a, you know, smaller amount of dishes. I think obviously if people are loading up the dishwasher with just a few dishes every time they eat or every time, every day, and then, and it's not full and they're running it just to run it and get it done. Um, you know, certainly that could have more of an environmental impact than if we were to wait until the dishwasher is relatively full and then run it. Um, you know, so you know it could go it could go different ways depending on, as you were talking about, the, the size of your household, how many dishes you typically use, how often you're running that dishwasher. But I think if you were just running it a normal amount um, after filling up the dishwasher, then it's still more environmentally friendly than hand washing, especially if we're doing things like um, just squirting the soap on the dishes and then rinse, you know, rinsing them underneath the running water. That's clearly not environmentally friendly. Mm.
0: But if you, okay, so say, so the, my my mum, she lives on her own. She's got a dishwasher, but she very rarely uses it because mm-hmm. by the time she's filled it up, she has no dishes left and um, it's been a week um, and everything's really stuck onto the plates. So if she wants to, you know, improve her hand-washing practices, do you have any recommendations there?
1: Yeah, I think it's good. If you, if you have a double sink, um, so a double-sided sink, to fill up the sink with with one side, fill up the sink with water, like sudsy water, and then have your other side also filled up as kind of a rinse bath for the dishes. So that would be a really great way to, um, you know, be more environmentally friendly when hand washing dishes. And I certainly use that practice. And I grew up with that practice, which is great. But alternatively, if you don't have that double sided sink, if you just have like a one Uh, tub, sink kind of thing, you can buy a, um, almost like a pan or a plastic tub, set it on your counter next to your sink, fill that up with water and make that be your rinse bath. Because we don't necessarily need to run the the faucet to rinse. You can just kind of dunk your dishes to get the suds off, you know, essentially. So that can make it a more, a little bit more environmentally friendly. And uh, there's certainly no harm in that.
0: And after after I've, I've noticed that after i've you know rinsed quite a few plates um in that sort of section of water it gets a little bit cloudy you know there's a little bit of stuff that's come into there do we need to like change the water to make it um you know more san- um you know h- hygienic
1: sure you may it really just depends on the amount of of stuff that is you know congealing in the water and and whatnot but i think a good practice is to Start washing uh, your glassware first, um, with and then silverware and plates. And then, if you have cooking stuff like pots and pans, or um, you know, sauce spoons or whatever utensils that you were using, wash those, and then the pots and pans as your last thing. Because most of the grease that happens is going to be on the the pots and pans, and so if you stick them into the water last and you're fine, you know. And and most of the time you don't have to worry so much about the sanitation of your pots and pans because they get heated on the stove anyways. And so the sanitation kind of happens that way as well. Obviously you want them to be clean, but it's okay if if it's not perfect, you know, essentially.
0: Okay, great. And I've been in that situation where I had a really oily pan that I just washed and then I washed some glasses and every (laughs) glass was covered in oil.
1: Right. Yeah, and then you have to wash all of the
0: glasses again, and it was oh, so frustrating.
1: Yeah, so it really just it's the order of the things that you wash that can really help for sure.
0: And what about um, comparing, you know, dishwashers with hand washing in, in terms of sanitation? Yeah. So um,
1: I think that it, well. I guess I'm going to go back to a little story that I also included in my article about this. I'll never forget, like, the, I was in grad school and I had just moved in. I had moved to D- to Washington, D.C., and I had found a roommate on Craigslist. Essentially, this this guy owned a house and he was looking for a renter. So I rented um, a room from him. And when I had finished eating dinner on my first night there, I began washing my plate and fork in the sink, just because I was, you know, the only person who had eaten, you know, why, why put it, I felt like why put it in the dishwasher. And he kind of freaked out, which was uh, funny to me, he was adamant that all dishes had to go in the dishwasher for sanitizing. And I was shocked because I was shocked that he was, that he cared about such a thing, because I had spent all day after I had just moved in, I, you know, been scrubbing his kitchen, because it was pretty gross. (laughs) I was surprised that he cared about the sanitation. But it turns out he wasn't wrong. He was right. Um, dishwash- the dishwasher does, in fact, clean the dishes better or more. And um, an Energy Star- an ENERGY STAR certified dishwasher will get the water temperature to at least 60 degrees Celsius. And that temperature in the sink would obviously scald your hands. So we just get much hotter water in the dishwasher, which is good for sanitizing. So you know, obviously, in a, if you were in a hand washing situation, you could wear rubber gloves and uh, and turn up the heat. But we can only get our most um, water heaters will only go to forty eight degrees Celsius. So not quite that sixty degrees Celsius that a dishwasher will get to. So to um, to actually sanitize dishes. The National Sanitization Foundation says our home dishwashers should reach a final rinse cycle of at least 60, 65. And so that helps to sanitize. But, um, you know, the water inside most of our our machines gets much hotter than what we can produce from the tap. And that's just the way that dishwashers function. So certainly better at killing germs if we stick them in the dishwasher.
0: And what about in terms of like cleaning things effectively? Because something I've noticed um, is that, um, you know, I'll pull a plate out of the dishwasher and it'll still have bits of food on it. So then do I wash the dish and then put it in the dishwasher? Seems a bit, um, you know, doing the same thing twice, inefficient.
1: Right. It's inefficient to do that. And it's actually not great for our dishwashers. Our, Our dishwashers stop functioning at the same level. If we have, if we're rinsing the dishes before we put them in. And so, you know, this was really fascinating when I was researching this piece that I wrote about this, but, um, you know, clear, yes. Dishwashers are clearly not great for delicate glassware and things like that. So sometimes it's best to just, you know, wash those by hand, but, um, you know, for, uh, when you're, um, I'm going to start over. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I kind of lost where I was. Um, let's see here. I wanted to, Oh, okay. So I'll just start in. So, um, you know, no, we don't really need to wash or rinse the dishes before they go in the dishwasher. So, um, there's some statistics about this. And most people do actually rinse their dishes before they go into the dishwasher. Uh, about 90% of people do some level of rinsing before they load they load the dishwasher. But um, Consumer Reports says that rinsing is not a great idea. And and that only that's only to say if your dishwasher is, I mean, unless your dishwasher is totally ancient, you don't need to uh, do the rinsing. And that's because... Machines that have been sold in roughly the last decade, um, you know, I'll I'll even go back to saying about you know 2010. If you've got a dishwasher that's in your home after 2010, if, if it's a model from 2010 or later, then it, you you should definitely not be rinsing your dishwasher dishwa- dishes in the before putting them in the dishwasher. And that's because dishwashers nowadays have what's called a soil sensor, and that those soil sensors check for debris in the cloudy water. So, if we are pre rinsing our dishes in the sink, then the dishwasher doesn't do as good of a job. And that can leave your dishes with more like stuck on food or stains. And of course, you know, like you said, it's uh, not very efficient or effective in terms of time. And it's not very environmentally friendly if we're first rinsing them in the sink and then putting them in the dishwasher and running more water. So um, pre-rinsing negatively impacts the machine's performance. And um, another factor is that detergent enzymes, so independent of the dishwasher, the type of detergent that you're using, um, these detergents clean because they have enzymes in them. And these enzymes are designed to essentially cling to the food buildup. And that's how dishes get clean. So we don't want to interrupt that enzyme cleaning action by pre-rinsing. Um, so if you, if you have dishes that still have food on them, like maybe you didn't finish all your dinner or whatever you were eating, um, most manufacturers of dishwashers nowadays recommend scrape those leftover chunks into your trash bin or garbage disposal, or hey, put them in your compost pile if they're a good fit for that and then just do kind of a quick scrape and then load them into the dishwasher.
0: So I've, I've been to friends' houses where they've done that, but then there's sometimes food left on the plate. So why? what's causing that?
1: Um, you know, it could be a less effective dishwasher. Um, you know, not every model is is super great. So if you're noticing that, it might be time for a dishwasher upgrade. My dishwasher is from 2010, and I do notice this sometimes, and it's really frustrating. And I just haven't bit the bullet to buy a new new appliance yet. But another thing that really helps is, um, and we, we kind of forget about this, but we we have to clean that filter. So in the bottom of the dishwasher, most dishwashers sometimes the filter is located elsewhere, but Typically in the bottom of it, you know, if you, if you pull out the racks and you can reach into the bottom and you'll see that food has accumulated there. So if, if we don't clean that filter regularly, then that lands on all the dishes and then get stuck during that dishwashing process. So it's a great idea to just, you know, once a month, maybe twice a month reach down in there and kind of scrub it out, especially if you no- notice that that filter is getting a little grimy
0: i can't imagine how gross it would be if you've never checked it and you know you pull out
1: yeah yes, but... yeah it can be really gross i think we let ours go for you know too long one time and uh and it, it definitely got gross to clean it out for sure
0: didn't <laughs> yep, smell so good. do, it, do <laughs> it regularly so you don't have to do so you don't have to deal with something that's really really You don't gross. have to
1: be grossed out yes exactly yeah.
0: another problem that I found with dishwashers is that it leaves like a film on the glasses, Um, sort of like a cloudy film and it kind of feels, um, I don't know, like it doesn't feel nice. Do you know what's causing that? Do you know how we can change that? Or is that just, I guess, a fact of life?
1: I think it's kind of a fact of life until we get better dishwashers. You know, Sometimes it's a little bit of a residue from the soap that I think does that. So if it's becoming a problem for you, you can try to switch your your dish detergent. Whether you know maybe switch to pods rather than the liquid dish detergent. Just a little trial and error to see what works best with your dishwasher.
0: And you also mentioned that you know delicate glassware shouldn't go in the washing machine um, or dishwashing machine. Um, what other things shouldn't go in in there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I I typically don't put delicate glassware because it could break just based on all of the water whooshing around and a little jostling of the dishes. So don't put glass, you know, really delicate glassware, your typical glassware is fine. And if it's not, if something that's not that you're not attached to, certainly go into the dishwasher. But I also um, avoid putting pots and pans in the dishwasher. Uh, A lot of pots and pans are not manufactured for dishwasher um, action. And so it's best to keep those out. For uh, For example, I use some ceramic dishware or ceramic pots and pans that I love and they just cannot go into the dishwasher. But the other thing is I don't love having my pots and pans in the in the dishwasher and waiting for me to run it when I wanna cook later in the day, you know? So I typically just hand wash those items or anything I use to cook with and I, I also avoid putting my good knives in the dishwasher because um, the, it can lead to, um, let you know, they can become dull that way from the detergent. So I typically hand wash those as well.
0: Okay, so we still need to do some dishwashing, but maybe just not quite as much.
1: Not quite as much, yes, absolutely. But a little bit here and there, for sure.
0: And just the hard stuff too.
1: Yes, just the hard stuff, right? It's the, that seems unfair, right? I have to wash my pots and pans, but everything else can go in.
0: I know, washing a glass, that's easy. I can that's do easy. that. Yes, Forks, that's <laughs> fine. A pan, Ugh, I hate those.
1: I know, <laughs> it's not fun.
0: And that sort of is also um, our last question, which is people, some people like washing dishes by hand. They find it sort of therapeutic. Um, are there any you know, psychological benefits associated with washing dishes by hand?
1: Yeah. So um, in terms of hand washing being a therapeutic experience, absolutely. Um, as can other household chores. So whether you're weeding your, your vegetable or flower beds or mowing or cleaning, you know, mowing the lawn, cleaning the house, folding laundry, uh, there's actually some science behind this as to why these things could feel a little bit therapeutic. So these are all all mon- somewhat mundane tasks that don't require us to have deep thought about what we're doing. And what's really cool about that is this makes your mind free to ruminate or sort of internally think, which is really important for our well-being, as well as for if you have creative pursuits, like I'm a writer. So, um, you know, this this uh, this can be beneficial for your creativity. So... Um, If you and I'll give you a few examples. So we've all had that experience of getting a great idea about something, whether it's a project you're working on, or maybe it's how to deal with a certain life problem that you've been kind of mulling over. These things typically happen. These great ideas typically happen when we're not directly working on the on the project or focusing on the problem. And, you know, for example, I get some of my best ideas for my writing, when I'm out running, or maybe I'm taking a shower. So, uh, you know, that's just a couple examples. But the reason for this, as I mentioned, there's some science behind this. The reason is that we have a network of brain regions. And these ne- this network works together to form what is called our default mode network. And we all have it. But um, the default mode network is active when we're thinking about our lives or, you know, you're, you're thinking about your past in terms of memories or thinking about what you hope for your future, or just thinking about yourself in general, your sense of self a little bit. So that's when the default mode network is active. And it's not active when you're doing tasks that require, you know, much deeper thinking, like if we're, you know, answering a difficult work email or filing our taxes. And it's not active when we're focused on the external world, like if we're scrolling through social media and looking at other people's posts. So um, so it's really great to activate that default mode network, and uh, again, this has this can be beneficial for your well-being or creative pursuits. But an activity like hand washing gives us that o- opportunity to really activate the default mode network. Whereas, you know, if you're sitting down and watching TV, it's not active. So, um, so I really love tasks like that that get me to kind of. I can have like my little daydream time, and that's very therapeutic for people. People don't realize that. Um, that but as for oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and I go. Do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, but this is also um, true. Even if you have a dishwasher, and so you're not hand washing. Um, let's say you're you're loading the dishwasher up. Loading and unloading is also a little bit of time where you can. You know be ruminating on something you don't have to actually be thinking about loading the dishwasher we do it sort of automatically and so you still gain some of those benefits you know i think about as a as a child one of my chores was emptying the dishwasher and um it was something that i enjoyed because i could just kind of like daydream a little bit and and again this has benefits for your well-being
0: okay so just shifting the sort of therapeutic um thinking mode uh, from one activity to another one
1: absolutely yeah
0: okay and yes I definitely find I have great thinking time when I'm going for a run or when I'm in the shower
1: <laughs> yeah and it's frustrating because then you're not near your laptop or a notebook to write down your ideas. so I know okay.
0: I, I and I'm well, when I'm driving and I'm like I can't I can't stop driving
1: <laughs> right I know yeah. Um, but it's, there's science behind it. And one that's actually a really great tip that I have as a writer is if you're stuck on something uh, or whatever creative piece that you're working on, get out, go for a run, go weed your garden, go do the dishes, do whatever you got to do, get away from your laptop and it will come to you. And then you got to get back to your laptop essentially. But, you know,
0: just make sure you're driving. If you're driving somewhere, you can stop quickly. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um. And so in your own life, in your own house, um, what's a practice you do to manage cleanup in your kitchen?
1: Yeah. So I think just this practice that both my husband and I do of really just clean as you go. So again, if I'm cooking and I finish using a pan or a knife, um, you know, I might wash it immediately or I might, you know, let it pile up by the sink. And then as soon as I'm ready to uh, it, it, you know, the foods in the oven, or, you know, I have a little bit of downtime in between cooking tasks, then I will go ahead and wash up those dishes that I was using, essentially the pots and pans or utensils that I was using during my cooking time. Another thing that we do in our household, if one of us is cooking, then the other one is coming in to do that sort of cleanup as we go. And uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of teamwork, but it's a really great practice to get into if you can
0: something that my partner and I like doing is um, he'll put the dishes away and I'll clean the dishes because I'm really particular about how the dishes are cleaned. Um, but and but I really hate putting dishes away for some reason.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: So we have this like teamwork going um, where we we're doing the things that we both like doing.
1: Yeah, and my husband typically likes to hand wash these things and while I'm cooking and I love to cook. so it actually works out really well. So if you can find those things, that you either have a passion for or you're good at, and you split up those, split up the tasks, then it is a really great kitchen teamwork situation going on.
0: Great. Um, and are there any challenges um, to, you know, teaming up or cooking as you or cleaning as you go?
1: Yeah, I think for myself, if I were in the kitchen alone, um, I'm not a great multitasker. So I like to focus on one thing at a time. So if I'm cooking and then i turn my attention to cleaning the dishes i might burn my dinner so it's best if i have my husband in the kitchen with me doing that cleanup work while we you know while i'm cooking or something like that so that's a challenge for me is the multitasking
0: yeah the other thing i find is i'll clean something and i'm like oh i was going to use that to stir ah oh, <laughs> right. i've got to clean it again
1: yes i've had that happen with my husband too. He'll, uh, you know, he'll see that I've set something down and then he'll take it. And I'm like, I was using that.
0: (laughs) Yes. um, But still, still better, I guess, than not cleaning at all.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yes.
0: Was there anything that we've missed today that you wanted to touch on?
1: Um, Let's see. I think, you know, just going back to this idea of this practice I have of cleaning as they go. I think one of the things that I really love about doing that is that, you know, we never end up with a messy kitchen while we're cooking, you know, or after we're done. And we never have this feeling of needing to deal with the big mess after eating, which I think can just be sort of stressful, you want to sit down you and you, you want to enjoy your dinner. And so um, but the other thing that it really um, helps me be good about is I'm much more intentional about the items that I use while cooking rather than grabbing all these different pots and pans that I don't need or uh, extra utensils after I've figured, you know, set one down and then I grab another. I'm much more intentional about using as uh, a few dishes dishes as possible while I'm cooking because we are going to clean them up before we sit down to eat.
0: Uh, yes, I, mm-hmm. I'm i guilty of using more dishes than I really need. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the thing that I think as I said before the thing I really dislike doing is putting the dishes away after they've been cleaned um do you have any tips there on how to make it more enjoyable or um because the other thing is that tends to take over the rest of the kitchen because they're all drying there
1: yeah it does um yeah to make something more enjoyable you can do something called habit stacking so for example when I am, um, I really love using my stationary rowing machine, right? And so um, it's exercise. And so it's obviously, sometimes we can be unmotiv- uh, unmotivated for exercise. But I typically when I'm on the rowing machine, I will either listen to a podcast or an audio book. And so um, that's sort of a reward for me while I'm, you know, doing this physical activity, right? And so often, if I'm getting frustrated about my motivation, like maybe I don't want to do exercise that day, I just think about what I get to listen to while I row. So we and that will get me that will get me on that rowing machine. But the other thing is that so with, um, you know, we can do the same thing with these tasks, these chores that we don't necessarily love to do all the time. Like I really hate folding, putting away laundry. So I'm like you, you don't like putting away the dishes, that doesn't bother me, but putting away laundry, ugh. I do it. But I will often listen to something that entertains me, or maybe I'll talk to my mom on the phone, and we'll just be gabbing while I'm folding laundry. So that habit stacking can help you tackle a chore that you don't necessarily like to do, especially if you get to do an activity that you like to do, whether that's talking on the phone, or listening to something that uh, makes it the chore feel less like a chore
0: my mom's going to be getting a lot of phone calls then <laughs> Yes,
1: my mom does <laughs> for sure
0: what are they there for except to talk to you while you're doing dishes absolutely <laughs> um so th- thank you um We'll move on to the open mic section. That's where you get to talk about something that you're passionate about um, that doesn't necessarily have to be related to today's topic. And today we're going to be talking about something really special. Do you mind explaining what that is?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I wrote a book. It's called The Psilocybin Handbook for Women, How Magic Mushrooms, Psychedelic Therapy, and Microdosing Can Benefit Your Mental, Physical, and Spiritual Health. And so if anyone has not heard of psilocybin, that is what magic mushrooms are. And uh, and so, yeah, that's what I would love to talk about is a little bit about the book and the content of it and why people might be interested.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated. And it's a mouthful of a title.
1: I know. <laughs> so I just call it for short, the psilocybin handbook for women, although a lot of people have trouble pronouncing the, that word, myself included. I my tongue trips over it a bit.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to try and say that. I'm just going to call <laughs> them magic mushrooms. That's fine. So yeah, uh, please. Um, yeah, how did you get into this uh, topic?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. there's um, there's a lot of books out there on psychedelics, but no uh, there's so there's a lot of books on psychedelics and also psilocybin specifically, but none of these books that are out there now really look at um, psilocybin through the lens of women's health. So I really wanted to focus on, that as a topic related to psilocybin. And part of the reason for that is because uh, women's health often gets um, forgotten about. You know, um, we were left out, women were left out of early stage clinical trials in the United States until about the 1990s. And so a lot of medical research has just treated um, men and women or female and male bodies is how I should say it, treated them as the same when they're absolutely not. Clearly women have menstrual cycles, and, uh, and so I think it's just really important to, when we're exploring a health topic, and of course right now there's all this information coming out about psychedelics as people, as we have all of this new research happening right now. And it's really important to consider that the differences between the male body and the female body. So that's kind of the, the gist behind the book.
0: Interesting. And how does psilocybin affect Women's bodies or female bodies, as opposed to male bodies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some of the concepts are going to still be the same. So, what actually happens during in the in the brain during a psilocybin trip, like a journey on psilocybin, or um, if people are microdosing, some of that is similar. However, um, we we do, you know, obviously, people who are uh, assigned female at birth were they they menstruate typically, and not everyone because. For example, I had a hysterectomy and I no longer menstruate, but I did at one point in time. And so I think it's really fascinating. We're coming out with some new, um, there are some new case studies that have come out and anecdotal reports showing that psilocybin may actually help regulate the menstrual cycle. And that's simply just because we have, we have menstrual cycles and the menstrual cycle occurs along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And, um, and then we also have, everyone has a stress response, right? And that occurs along the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So in women, these two axes overlap. And so one can affect the other. If we have a lot of stress in our lives, that can impact the menstrual cycle. And then um, the menstrual cycle itself can cause stress on the body. And so it's really fascinating because when you use psilocybin, it activates your serotonin receptors, and the serotonin receptors are along that hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. So it can it can definitely impact the menstrual cycle. Researchers are still trying to figure out all of the exact mechanisms of this or why it's happening and how it's happening. Uh, but it's really it's it's certainly super interesting that. Um, we're starting to get some of this research coming out now.
0: That's so interesting. So it regular it helps to regulate the menstrual cycle.
1: Yeah. So what I've what I've heard from some researchers at Johns Hopkins um, Center for Psychedelic Consciousness Research or something like that is the full title I can't quite come up with right now. But um, they did some case studies with some women who had tried uh, psychedelics, and um, there were three women two of the women used psilocybin and um, one of them had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is PCOS for short, and another had uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is PMDD for short. And um, both of those women had uh, irregular menstrual cycles or dysregulation in their menstrual cycles. And after taking psilocybin, they, um, they found that their, their menstrual cycle came a little early, and it helped to get them back more on a regular track. So again, we need more research about this, but it's certainly super fascinating about all of the potential that's there to help women with these various conditions that that they have. And so, um, you know, for example, in chapter 11 of the book, um, which is was like the beast chapter, it took me forever to write. And I kept thinking, when is this chapter going to be over? But in that chapter, Um, I look at all of the research that we have so far on psilocybin and its potential role to help with different conditions, specifically conditions that, that either only affect people assigned female at birth or that disproportionately affect them or affect us in different ways. So an example of a condition that affects uh, women in a different way than it would affect men would be, and this isn't really a condition, but if someone is smoking cigarettes, and they want to um, stop smoking, they want to quit smoking, it's different for women than it is for men. And that is simply because women have different nicotine receptors. And so there's all these products out there for smoking cessation. And they are targeted for nicotine receptors, but they don't work as effectively in women. But psilocybin is now being studied as something that may help people quit smoking. So it's just really fascinating when you start to look at the differences uh, between men and women with different conditions, and then looking at the research that has come out so far regarding psilocybin. I just find the topic extremely fascinating.
0: That's so interesting. I'd love to learn more. I'm gonna have to go and find your book. So has it been published yet?
1: No, it comes out next week. So it comes out on June sixth, And uh, I'm really excited about it. And it's available anywhere books are sold. So, um, you know, you can get, go to your local bookstore and, and get it. And uh, um, I always encourage people to support independent bookstores. But it's it's about to be published. It's about to come out into the world. And I'm just so excited.
0: Great! I'm excited. I I I found this topic really interesting. I've heard research before about depression and psilocybin, so I'd love to see how it um, affects yeah um, different bodies in different ways.
1: Absolutely, and I can talk briefly about the the way that it helps in the brain for um, things like depression, anxiety, and whatnot. There's a um, researchers have come up with this model to describe what sort of happens and. Um, the model is called REBUS, R-E-B-U-S, and it stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. So in normal states of consciousness, our belief systems are pretty rigid. And what I, what I mean by belief systems are the things that you think about yourself or the, how the world operates, those are our belief systems. And um, when we're, when, when we were kids, that, those belief systems are very flexible and malleable. But as we get older, um, into adulthood, they become much more rigid. And then what that does, it prevents us from understanding ourselves or the world in a new way. So this rebus model, they have a great analogy. These researchers created this great analogy for how psychedelics really help us. So if you think about normal, a normal state of consciousness like you and I are in right now, um, then our minds are kind of frozen. That sounds silly, but it's if we think about a pond, that's frozen it got frozen water right and then if you try to give it new input so if if i was trying to gain a new belief about myself and i thought of that belief as a rock or a pebble or a ball that i'm dropping onto this frozen pond it doesn't gain entry it just hits the surface right maybe it cracks the surface a tiny bit but it doesn't do anything now when we're on psychedelics and and psilocybin included um then that that belief system or our minds are more like a thawed pond, you know, just regular old water. And so if you were to take that belief that you're trying to gain entry into your mind, um, and you drop, you drop that pebble or that rock or that ball onto the pond, it gains entry and it creates a ripple effect. So it can, whatever belief is that you're trying to grasp, um, will, will stick. And, uh, And so it helped. You can see how, if you have negative beliefs about yourself or you have depression or anxiety, that um, how this could potentially help. So I just kind of wanted to explain that to give people the nutshell version or the Cliffs Notes version of what psilocybin does in the brain.
0: Great. Thank you. Cause I've, I've listened to a few podcasts about it. um, And, None of them have explained how it really works in the brain. They've all say, oh, it's this amazing drug that, you know, can help people and, but they don't really go into how it works. So thank you for that.
1: You're welcome. And I do have a whole chapter about that, digging into that science on the brain. It was fascinating.
0: Great. Um, So other than buying your book, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Yeah. So I
1: keep it simple on all the social media channels. I am at Jen At J E N C H E S A K. You can also find me on my website, which is jenniferchesick.com.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, And we'll make sure that the links for those are in our um, show notes so people can find them. Um, Thank thank you. you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Great. You've been listening to On the House produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.